Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 29th of June 2020. The time is a quarter past two. We've had some technical issues this morning, but we're delighted to now be live with uh, UK Column News. And uh, we're also delighted to have Vanessa Beely back with us. We'd hoped to have Vanessa on the news with us uh, last week. We weren't able to do that, but she's able to join us today. And we've also got uh, David Scott. But first of all, we're going to start with the critical issue of masks, because apparently they've become very important again. Is well, absolutely. But of course, we should yeah. mention, of course, uh, Mark Sedwell uh, has resigned. And uh, we will be coming on to that uh, a little bit later. But as Brian says, we're beginning with masks, because uh, here is the, uh, the Guardian today. Coronavirus, uh, what kind of face mask gives the best protection against COVID-19? And they say, yes. Different types of masks offer different levels of protection. Surgical grade N95 respirators offer the highest levels of protection against COVID-19 infection. Now, this is very important. Keep this in mind as we work through this. Surgical grade N95 respirators offer the highest level of protection, according to The Guardian, followed by surgical grade masks. However, these masks are costly. Uh, in limited supply, contribute to landfill waste and are uncomfortable to wear for long periods. So even countries that have required the public to wear face masks have generally suggested such masks should be reserved for health workers or those of at particular high risk. So this is the Guardian's position. They then go on to suggest that we might want to use disposable masks and they are very helpful about that. But look, uh, here's a meme and I'm afraid this is the reality of it. When you're working with viruses, uh, this uh, meme showing two guys working in a, in a lab. When you're working with viruses, what you'll notice is they're blown up like Michelin men, Brian, because, of course, in order to keep the viruses out, despite all the other protection that they have there, they keep a, a positive, positive pressure, pressure inside yeah. the suit. Uh, and so this meme says uh, this is what virologists wear to protect themselves from a virus. Don't worry, though, your bandana probably works too. Um, well, does it? Now, just before we uh, question whether it does or not, let's just remind ourselves what the mainstream media has been saying uh, here, because uh, coronavirus was already in Italy by December, wastewater study finds, and this was from the 19th, 18th of June. Uh, here's The Guardian again. They're saying first COVID-19 case happened in November. China government records show. Uh, and uh, here's uh, The Blaze. Coronavirus outbreak may have started in September and possibly not in Wuhan, scientists say. Uh, and here's the World Economic Forum. A study reveals that coronavirus had spread around the world by late 2019. So this raises some questions. Uh, let's bring this graph back on screen again. This is the ex -mortality, excess mortality graph for the UK. Um, and uh, what we're saying is that the red shaded area is the very key area that we've got to look at. But let's put, first of all, uh, the date of lockdown uh, on here. So according to those mainstream media articles, uh, coronavirus started September, October, November, December, sometime around the, the third or fourth quarter of last year. Um, but let's just just looking at the, the, uh, the first uh, several weeks of this year, we've got to ask, what has Corona been doing all this time from September right forward until now? What has it been doing? Because as we can see, up until the date of lockdown, there's no excess mortality at all. In fact, uh, the deaths, the deaths on, uh, for 2020, which is the red line, were below the orange line, which was the uh, average of the last five years, um, right up until the point of lockdown. 
So we have called this uh, the lockdown deaths uh, for a very good reason, because those are the deaths that were caused by the lockdown. This was caused by the reorientation of the NHS purely to COVID, away from any other type of treatment uh, and the deaths as a result. Also, the fact that uh, people were being sent back to nursing homes uh, with indeterminate status and the nursing homes weren't getting any kind of medical support themselves. So, but our question is, what was Coroni doing? all the way up until the date of lockdown. This isn't just in the UK. Let's look at uh, New York, uh, another area of massive lockdown. Let's put the lockdown on the New York graph. Uh, that's the date they went into lockdown that week. Uh, and we can see again, lockdown deaths and all the weeks up until the lockdown, no excess mortality at all. Uh, let's look at Europe as a whole. Here's the Euromomo stats. And again, let's put the lockdown. Now, of course, different countries have different lockdown dates, but let's take an average or so, which is around week 11, week 13, something like that. And again, we can see that in 2020, no excess mortality uh, right up until the date of lockdown. And then suddenly we had excess mortality. These are lockdown deaths, not COVID deaths. Again, the question is, what was going on with COVID from September, October, November last year, right up until the date of lockdown? It apparently wasn't killing anybody, or at least not anybody extra, uh, Brian. So the question then is, why are we being forced to wear masks? Uh, because the, clearly uh, the, these masks weren't worn by the general public in the first three months of the year, four months of the year, and they certainly weren't worn by the members of the general public in the last quarter of last year. Um, so what's going on? In fact, are masks helpful? Well, let's look at some of the scientific literature. Uh, here's a few papers. Uh, the first one there uh, is basically saying that the use of N95 respirators compared with surgical, surgical masks is not associated with a lower risk of laboratory confirmed influenza. Now, remember what the what the Guardian said, surgical grade N95 respirators offer the highest level of protection against COVID-19 infection, followed by surgical grade masks. But the scientific literature says the use of N95 respirators compared with surgical, surgical masks is not associated with a lower risk of laboratory confirmed influenza. Now, a different virus, okay, but nonetheless, the principle is the same. Uh, the second report there says that their study revealed that a decrease in oxygen saturation of uh, arterial pulsations and a slight increase in pulse rates compared to preoperative values in all surgeon groups, they were looking at uh, masks being worn during surgery and discovering a physiological effect. And they were saying that the, de the decrease uh, in oxygen satura saturation was more prominent in the surgeons aged over 35. And then finally, this uh, other uh, report here, other scientific uh, report here, basically says that hypoxia, they're talking about hypoxia-inducible factor one. They're saying that wearing masks, uh, to the type of degree that we're being encouraged to wear masks at the moment, actually causes tumours. Um, so uh, <laughs> we're being pushed to wear masks. Why? The, the evidence isn't there to support it, but there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it's actually dangerous for, for us to wear them. Uh, but then let's look at this. Uh, this is on a, uh, an ear loop mask, medical mask. Warning, this product is an ear loop mask. This product is not a respirator and will not provide any protection against COVID-19 uh, or other viruses or contaminants. Wearing an ear loop mask does not reduce the risk of contracting any disease or infection. Uh, user is solely responsible for the selection of appropriate personal protective equipment for the setting and uh, applications. So 
Uh, that seems pretty clear, Brian, but apparently it's not uh, because the fact checkers have been out. That particular picture has been doing the rounds of Facebook and the fact checkers have been out saying uh, that uh, the mask box label is legitimate, but people are misinterpreting it. Uh, and so the suggestion that, the, that uh, uh, you know, ordinary masks uh, are going to provide uh, any kind of protection is, is clearly wrong. It says it on the box. Uh, using uh, medical grade masks uh, might provide some additional support, but not much, according to the other scientific literature. And in fact, uh, the negative sides, the downsides of using it are a lot higher than the positives. So where does that leave us? We're being conditioned. Yeah, that's what's going on. This is Pavlov's dogs, except the public in UK um, will stick to, to UK public. They are the dogs. We are being conditioned to do something which is completely stupid because if the government can get us to walk around wearing masks when it's hot sunshine, fresh air, they can get us to do anything they want. So my view on this is it's social conditioning, immensely dangerous. And uh, somebody pointed out to me the other day that uh, in the Navy, in the combat um, condition, you wear a thing called anti-flash, which is a material hood, but it also has a, a mask session that comes up over your nose and mouth. This is principally to protect you from um, flash blast from an explosion. But it's immensely tiring if you're closed up for a six-hour period with anti-flash on. It's very tiring and you have to relax it. And yet you've got elderly people who are wearing these masks all the time now because the government has got them so scared. So it's Pavlov's dogs. Um, Vanessa, have you got any thoughts on this? I mean, what, welcome to the programme, first of all. What, what are your thoughts on, on how this is going in the UK? Uh, you, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. No, you mentioned, um, it was interesting that you mentioned the N95 masks. I just wanted to read something out very quickly from Cynthia Gabaldon, who is in um, DC, Washington, DC. She's OSHA 10 and 30 certified. N95 masks are designed for contaminated environments. That means when you exhale through N95, the design is that you're exhaling into contamination. The exhale from the masks are vented to breathe straight out without filtration. They don't filter the air on the way out. They don't need to. Um, so a guy with COVID has an N95 mask. His COVID breath is unfiltered, being exhaled into target. So in other words, it's actually increasing the chances of uh, anybody standing next to him getting COVID-19. Um, equally, the surgical masks are designed and approved for sterile environments. The amount of particles and contaminants in the outside and indoor environments where people are clogging these masks very quickly. And we all know that basically what's happening with the majority of these masks is that the whatever contaminants, whatever um, bacteria is basically clogging inside the mask and is being rubbed all over the person's face during the day while they're pulling them up and down. So I totally agree with Brian. This is about conditioning. This is about control. This is about muzzling. This is about uh, conformity. Um, absolutely. David, welcome to the programme. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, we're seeing um, reports of uh, breathlessness uh, from people wearing the masks, of headaches, um, dizziness. These are all carbon dioxide poisoning symptoms. 
um, and we know that people wearing these masks are uh, breathing in as much carbon dioxide uh, as would set off a, a CO2 alarm in a house. That's certainly uh, evidence there that there are some health effects, negative health effects from wearing the masks. And of course, N95, 95 means it filters out 95% of particles, presumably based on size. Does it do anything with COVID? I would rather think not very much. Okay, well, look, let's uh, just briefly uh, uh, cover Scotland. And, and you were talking about uh, uh, Devi Sridhar last week. Uh, this is her book, Governing Global Health. Uh, this is the person who's driving COVID policy in Scotland. This is the COVID. This is the source of COVID policy in Scotland, um, and the, the book here, co-written with Chelsea Clinton, governing global health. That that alone's a strange title. But the little tagline, "Who runs the world and why?" That was put there, I think, to sell the book because the book does not answer that question. Um, but uh, as you go into what they're talking about, it's all public private partnership. The solution to all of these things is public-private partnership. So this is the economic system of fascism. This is uh, what's being advocated. But the, the change here is it's on a global scale. So that's what's uh, factoring in all of the decision-making that's coming out of the Scottish Government on COVID. Okay, so uh, so where does that take us? Well, we've got a couple of just a couple of data points here I wanted to raise just just to illustrate how little is really known about this this disease even now. Uh, the first one is from England and Wales, and it's a, a record of the ratio of deaths to occupied hospital beds over time, and you see it's plummeting from six percent deaths down to one percent. So it's not at all clear why that is. Well, Does that well, mean that? Well, I th I think, I th yeah, no, David. I think I think it is relatively clear now why that is because because first of all, there's nobody in the hospitals, so people are dying at home, uh, and as well as that, old people have been sent to their care homes from the hospitals, and so they're dying in their care homes. And I think that is that's that's exactly what you're seeing on that graphic. Okay, well, I mean, it, it could be the moved out to care homes, but it could also be to do with the sort of treatment that's being applied. Certainly, it seemed to be in New York that the very aggressive incubation uh, of, of the patients was actually harmful. Um, so I, I, I think there might be, what you say is perfectly correct, but there might be even more to learn there. Now, the other stat I've got here is from the United States, and this one's really remarkable. Um, it looked across all sorts of age ranges and all sorts of, um, you know, across the various time frames. And it showed the, the, the peak affecting the elderly and not really affecting anyone else. But when it came to uh, deaths under the age of 18, uh, this graph came out. Now, all of the, the lines that are all much of a muchness, that's the last six years. So you see it's running at 700 deaths per week for the under 18s across the whole of the United States. And yet for this year, once the lockdown came in, into force, the, the deaths for children under the age of 18 plummeted in a completely unprecedented manner. We've not seen anything like this. Now, what's happening there? The suggestion is, well, vaccination rates also plummeted. Is that what's causing it? Um, sudden infant death syndrome is one of the main killers because this, this, this um, decline, it wasn't teenagers not out taking risks and not out drinking. It wasn't anything like this. It, it affected between one month and one year, that was the main area where the decline was located. 
So what's happening to babies that they're not dying anymore in anything like the numbers they were before? Something very significant is happening here. Is it is it a reduction of SIDS due to uh, vaccination rates falling? We really need to know. Uh, very, very good question. Perhaps we can say with any viewers or listeners who can help out with explaining that amazing statistic, we'd be very grateful. Uh, now, uh, of course, we were hoping to have Vanessa on with us uh, last Wednesday, and we had uh, a number of uh, slides and, and topics to discuss uh, about Syria, and we're going to talk about those today. We're going to start off with, with this, uh, because I got into a little bit of trouble last week by, by putting this on screen while Vanessa wasn't here. And of course, she wasn't here to give the context of it. Uh, and so I hadn't appreciated or I'd forgotten that this particular uh, photograph was, uh, was, mo was not this, from this year. It was actually from last year. Uh, but anyway, Vanessa, we want to start off with, with that correction in mind. We want to start off with this article uh, from your website, The Wall Will Fall. Uh, the headline is, Syria's children go to bed hungry because the U.S. coalition is ensuring food insecurity. And you're commenting on, uh, on this uh, article from the Financial Times, which is uh, headlined, Serious Children Go to Bed Hungry as Prices Soar. Um, so uh, so give, us, uh, give us your thoughts on this. What is going on with the burning of crops at the moment? Well, I mean, to start with, this article is incredibly, I mean, it, you know, it's criminally misleading. Um, I read through the whole article. Not once does it mention, of course, the sanctions that have been imposed on Syria since 1979 ratcheting up along with the 10-year war that has been imposed upon them by the U.S. coalition um, and their terrorist proxies, of course, for the last 10 years. But leading now, of course, has been a sort of incremental um, increase in the pressure against the Syrian people during the war, but culminating in um, the Caesar law, which came into effect on June the 17th, on my birthday, unfortunately, which has effectively increased um, the pressure on all sectors in Syria, humanitarian, medical. There are pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical companies are now very short of supplies. Pharmacies are unable to provide um, the medicines that are required by people inside um, Syria. And of course, on top of that, what the US coalition has been trying to do both last year, well, throughout the conflict, but um, last year and this year in particular, and this year we're seeing a huge number of fires um, in agricultural sectors that are either bordering areas still occupied by the various terrorist factions financed, armed and equipped, of course, by the US coalition, including the UK, um, or actually occupied um, by the NATO terrorists. In the northeast and the northwest, of course, that, that comes under the banner of Turkish control. Um, and what we're seeing are a huge number of fires, particularly in wheat and barley crops that have been deliberately started um, in one area in Hasaka in the northeast. Um, we believe, or it has been reported, that Trump American helicopters actually dropped thermal balloons to start the fires and to destroy the crops. So far, 130,000 hectares of wheat and 180,000 hectares of barley have been burned, and the fires are continuing. Um, if we look at, I don't know if you have um, the map available that, that we made, um, but you'll come to it later probably. Um, but it's basically from the south to the northwest to the northeast and even centrally close to Homs, uh, northern Hamar, 
um, we're seeing these fires erupting. Now, of course, this has been a pattern of the US coalition occupation of Syria. We've seen not only the burning of the crops, we've seen um, the stealing or the theft of, um, for example, cotton, of olive trees. We've seen um, the decimation of the the traditional Syrian uh, olive harvest, both for oil and olives themselves. They were the fourth largest producer in the world. Um, now, half of their uh, olive um, sectors are occupied by these U.S. coalition um, terrorist groups. Um, and so, therefore, what we're seeing is not only the, the, the attempt to push Syria into a deliberate state of food insecurity to, of course, force the regime change that militarily the U.S. coalition has failed to do. Um, but also what we're seeing is a sort of mafia operation where these criminal gangs, these terrorist groups, including ISIS, including al-Qaeda, including um, the Kurdish Contras, the SDF, are using these products as um, revenue. So you, we have the oil, we have the cotton, we have the wheat, we have the barley. Um, SDF, for example, is selling the wheat and the barley to Turkey for Turkish currency. It's not allowing um, the farmers to sell the products to, the, to, to Syria, to Damascus. Um, so the SDF is participating in this basic blockade and starvation and siege warfare against the Syrian people. Um, as are, of course, al-Qaeda and ISIS, that goes without saying. Um, but what we are seeing is, is an absolute criminal blockade of every facet of Syrian society in an attempt to basically push them into the abyss of food insecurity and starvation and to deprive them of all of their own natural resources. I mean, even down to the fact that um, sheep are being stolen, indigenous sheep are being stolen, beehives are being stolen. As I said, the olive trees are being decimated. They're either being used as firewood or, as I say, the areas that are occupied, the terrorists themselves are producing and using um, the product for um, revenue. Um, yeah, look, I'm going to apologise. I don't have that map. I, uh, I've, I've, <laughs> I haven't put it in, but, but which is unfortunate because one of the things that the map shows um, is that you know, you've got the United States influence in the northeast, as you said. You've got Turkey in the northwest. You've got Israel messing about in the southwest. Uh, well, and and we're going to come on to that in a second. Yeah. Y yes, yeah. we're going to come on to that in a second. But but what is going on? with Is, is there an effort to balkanize Syria at the moment? Uh, is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I compare it quite often to um, Palestine, because what we're actually seeing now is an encircling um, of the area which is effectively under the protection and the control of the Syrian government, the Syrian army and allies. Um, the northwest is occupied and annexed by Turkey, the northeast occupied and annexed by the U.S. coalition and its proxies, which include ISIS and the SDF. In the south, now, what is interesting here, of course, we know that um, Israel takes 30 percent of its water supply from the illegally annexed Jolan Heights or the Jalan territories, because it doesn't, it includes other territories, not only the heights. But what is interesting is in March of this year, an SAS operative was airlifted out of the south of Syria, um, having been injured by an IED explosion. Now, we know in the west of Dada, which of course is where 
the alleged revolution started, um, we've seen the, the resurgence of the armed groups, particularly Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, and we suspect that it is British um, military that are effectively training um, and equipping and working with these groups to uh, carry out what we would call the swarm um, strategy against the Syrian people, i.e. small localized attacks. For example, there was an attack on a military bus um, about a week ago now where I think there were at least eight martyrs um, among the Syrian army soldiers who were aboard the bus um, and more than 30 injured. And so what we're seeing are these clandestine activities, which we have to suspect are being managed by British intelligence as opposed to, or maybe in conjunction, of course, with Israeli intelligence. And then to the southeast, you have Rukban, euphemistically called refugee camp, which is a recruitment center for al-Qaeda and ISIS under the protection of the U.S. military base at Al-Tanaf, which is just to the north of Rukban, and we know that weapons and equipment are coming in from Jordan to supply the terrorist factions that are being trained and recruited inside Rukban. And then they are carrying out isolated and sporadic attacks um, to the east of Homs, to the east of the Euphrates, and so on. So we're seeing this very concerted, as you say, this very concerted attempt to balkanize Syria, to basically attempt to eventually um, create a Syria which is surrounded, completely surrounded, um, by enemy hostile occupying forces. Um, and I think this is a huge danger. And I think the Caesar law, which of course now is, is being expanded and will be extended, of course it's, it's completely criminal and fraudulent in itself. I totally recommend everyone to read Rick Sterling's um, investigation into the actual veracity of the Caesar report upon which this law has been based. Um, and so what we're seeing now is, is this encircling of central Syria um, and this attempt to absolutely blockade all of Syria. Of course, with COVID-19, we've seen the weaponization of COVID-19 in order to close all borders to Syria. And then, of course, that has then brought in um, the Caesar law, which has then further increased the maximum pressure against Syria. So in my view, yes, um, we are going to see an increase in pressure upon the Syrian people. However, I do have to say that I'm always astounded by their resilience, their resourcefulness uh, in their resistance against all the measures imposed upon them by the U.S., including, I mean, even locally. We have a Facebook page where people who have excess medicines are posting what they have available so people can come and pick them up for nothing. That's just a small element um, of the kind of resistance that the Syrian people will put up against this kind of um, criminal activity by the U.S. coalition. But how on earth the U.S. can claim that the Caesar law is there to protect, uh, protect Syrian citizens when effectively it is ensuring their starvation, their deprivation, their misery and their poverty. I think perhaps uh, the word citizen and terrorist are interchangeable on the, with respect to that. Uh, but look, I just want to I just want to end with this, uh, Vanessa, because you mentioned the uh, RAF uh, trying to save an SAS uh, soldier wounded in an IED. Uh, this is this has been acknowledged, as, as you can see on screen there in the mirror in the UK. But there, there don't seem to be any questions being asked about what 
the SAS are doing there in the first place, uh, bearing in mind that uh, the British government has always maintained uh, that there would be no boots on the ground. So I, I'm just interested to know if, if, you, if you've got any, I mean, you've, you've suggested that there's uh, uh, training equipped going on there, but, but what, what sort of scale are we talking about? Um, that's very difficult to answer. Um, I mean, certainly I'm surprised nobody has been raising the questions in Parliament, for example. Um, but certainly what we've seen in the last year is a re-emergence, as I said, of the armed militant factions, particularly to the west of Dara. Um, we've seen some Syrian army operations against pockets of um, the militant groups that still remained even after the amnesty and reconciliation. But we're seeing on an almost um, weekly basis, if not more, assassinations of people who are considered to be government loyalists or who are actually effectively working for the governments. But that includes doctors, dentists, nurses, medical staff who are being assassinated by these armed groups. Now, this type of warfare, this kind of um, as I said, sporadic attacks, IED attacks, suicide attacks, um, uh, isolated uh, assassinations is, of course, very typical um, of intelligence clandestine operations. And that is very much what I've been told, is that it's this kind of warfare that is now being waged. And, of course, the British have a history um, of this kind of warfare. So the very fact that an SAS operative, he's not going to be operating alone, um, was um, airlifted out of the South of Syria. And what was extraordinary when they said, you know, basically this was a war zone. Well, it's not a war zone in theory. The South um, surrendered. It took amnesty and reconciliation. And the Syrian government is now effectively attempting to reintegrate those armed groups or the Syrian armed groups back into society. So what we're seeing are British operatives clearly maintaining incitement of, of military uh, reaction against the Syrian government and against the Syrian people. Yeah, OK, well, look, uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Um, much appreciated. And we will have you uh, on the programme again very, very soon. Very, very interesting. And uh, we'll keep an eye on what's going on with uh, the continuing attacks uh, on Syria. Um, yeah. Thanks, Vanessa. Right now, let's uh, let's move on to this. If you uh, like what the column's doing and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Now, just... Uh, David Noakes, of course, uh, in prison in France at the moment. There are his details on screen if you would like to write and offer some support. I'm going to say thank you very much to the viewer. Sorry, Mike, just point out it's got external screen. Oh, that's the wrong graphic. I do apologise. We're having technical problems today. I do. <laughs> <laughs> right, OK, well, no worries. We'll make sure that's we'll up on Wednesday. We'll make sure that's up on Wednesday, absolutely. Now, the reason I put this up, uh, aside from, from another opportunity to, uh, to give that information, which we failed to do, uh, I wanted to put this uh, lady on screen, and that is Fiona Bruce, who's member, a member of the Parliament. Uh, and, uh, well, thank you very much to the viewer who wrote to Fiona Bruce about David Noakes. Uh, and her response was, uh, as you see on screen, I confirm that I've looked into this. Uh, I can also confirm that the European arrest warrant, which is how David ended up in France, only applies to EU member states. Uh, and as we have left the EU, we're no longer a member state. And David, uh, I've got to say that if this is the uh, level of awareness of RMPs, uh, we are in deep trouble because 
clearly the European arrest warrant absolutely still applies to the UK because she may have forgotten we're still in the transition period and therefore still a full member of the EU. Yes, I mean, it shows it shows both a lack of understanding of where we're at, but also if she actually believed that to be true, then presumably she has to hit the alarm bell because David Noakes would have been taking out, taken out of the country unlawfully. But she didn't seem to do that either. Uh, well, I'll just add to that, David. I haven't, I haven't seen her reply. I haven't seen the letter, but I think she's very disingenuous with how she's framed that response because he is the key issue. But she says, I can confirm that European arrest warrant only applies to EU member states. And as we've left the EU, we are no longer a member of state. Uh, well, that moves to one side because the issue is that that uh, European arrest warrant has been used. Mm -hmm. And she should be focusing on why we have somebody in a French prison as a result. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. It's, it's looking at it's looking at the specifics of the case, not just the generalities. We actually need uh, politicians who are willing and courageous enough to look at actual cases and start to, start to highlight uh, cases which have gone badly wrong. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's come on to uh, to Mark Sedwell then, uh, because here he is. We've shown this graphic many times, uh, and until well, until he finally leaves his job, he has made his resignation or offered his resignation has been accepted, uh, and uh, he will leave his job in September. Uh, but he uh, is the head of the or the National Security Advisor, therefore head of the National Security Council. He is also uh, in head of the Cabinet Office and head of the Civil Service. Uh, and the point that we have been making for quite some time now, of course, is how is it that one person has this level uh, of control, uh, command and control uh, in the UK? And we're asking who is the government of the UK? Well, he has now gone, uh, we're delighted to say. Uh, and so there's an opportunity to, uh, to deal with this problem. And the question is, uh, who is going to be uh, in these roles and what are the roles uh, going to be exactly? Uh, well, the first... Uh, person that has been announced is David Frost. Uh, he has uh, been made National Security Advisor, therefore in charge of the intelligence services. Um, and uh, well, he is a he is has been the chief negotiator for the uh, future relationship with the EU uh, over the last period of time. Uh, we'll be glad to know that he has uh, said this. My aim is to support the Prime Minister in setting a new strategic vision for Britain's place in the world as an independent country after the end of the EU transition period. Uh, and he said, uh, to do this effectively, we need to strengthen and refocus our international policy apparatus to ensure we keep pace with others in the world. And just to, for the avoidance of doubt, he said, I will, of course, remain chief negotiator for the EU talks, and these will remain my top single priority until those negotiations have concluded one way or the other. So this is the man that is uh, now in place uh, as the uh, National Security Advisor. Um, now, what's interesting about this, David, uh, of course, is that what seems to be going on with the EU Brexit negotiations, is, uh, which are being run by David Frost, is if we remember back to, to when um, Michel Barnier presented what he wanted to see out of a deal, uh, the graphic that he showed was basically split in two. On the left-hand side of the graphic was all the, tr the trade relationship stuff. On the right-hand side of the graphic, was the defence, security and intelligence sharing, intelligence services stuff. Uh, and what David Frost seems to be doing is he is holding the, uh, 
the defense, security and intelligence uh, negotiations as a bargaining chip uh, for the trade negotiations. He seems to be very keen, as he said, and as we just quoted, and he said in his statement there, he seems to be very keen to see Britain uh, as an independent state on the international stage. Uh, and uh, But he does, it seems to me, he is prepared to uh, include the UK's military and intelligence services in whatever deal is done in order to, to get that status from a trading point of view. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on that and, and him as the, therefore, as the National Security Advisor. It's a, it's a very interesting, really quite surprising choice. Um, I, I must admit, I thought it was very funny the way he actually trolled the EU as he as, as he was accepting the promotion uh, by saying, "Well, I'll stay. I'll stay until the negotiations are complete, one way or another." Right. So that's again saying we're willing to walk away. You have to you have to compromise. This is the um, the, the very robust gamesman-like approach that's been going on since Boris took over. Quite the reverse of the said well regime but the thing that, that that unsettles me is yes the defense security and intelligence world is up maybe as a bargaining chip but it's not a category that we're even discussing explicitly with the eu and that was a british insistence that that's the case so if we're not discussing it explicitly under a heading that means it's being concealed from the british people so this bargaining chip that may be applied on our behalf, um, will we be told about it? Uh, well, we haven't been told about it for the last several years. Uh, UK Column, with David Ellis's help, has, has been unique in, in trying to, uh, camp, uh, to bring people's attention to this issue. Um, and if, I don't see any reason why they would start telling the British people about it at this stage. Uh, so we've got to keep asking these questions. Now the next uh, the next issue is this. Then who takes over the rest of it? Who takes over as uh, head of the uh, cabinet office and head of the civil service? Uh, well, we don't know who that is yet. Uh, the first civil service commissioner, Ian Watmore, uh, is going to launch a competition to appoint a new cabinet secretary and head of the civil service. Uh, applications will be invited from existing and former permanent secretaries. Now, what's interesting about this, David, is that uh, the way that that's fr phrased, uh, launching a competition to appoint a new cabinet secretary and head of the civil service. These aren't two roles. They are clearly intending to maintain that situation as a single role. Uh, and I think that's not good enough. No, it's very strange indeed. And also having the cabinet office in direct communication with 77th Brigade, which is part of the army, and was initially um, sold to us as the means of stopping those pesky Russians with the misinformation. And in purely defensive, and you know, a bunch of white knights, but part of the army, part of hybrid warfare, that's been run from the cabinet office. Uh, indeed, well, it is odd uh, indeed. Now, uh, what's Mark said we're going to do? Well, he's being kicked up to the House of Lords. He's going to get a life peerage, which is very good for him. Uh, but he's also been uh, put in charge of a new G7 panel on global economic security. Uh, this, David, seems like a non-job, so he's been pushed uh, into a little corner there to, and given a, a title. Uh, what influence is this going to have on the world? Zero. None. This is a pension. This is to keep him quiet by putting him on a big enough salary that um, 
he has no personal problems and uh, keeping him just busy enough to stop him uh, creating havoc. It's um, nothing to do with influence. It's everything to do with having no influence. Um, so uh, do, we, do we call this a success then? The quarterback is toast. You, you absolutely right we call it a success. It, of course, in this, uh, what would we call it, target-rich environment, it only, it only reveals the next target, okay? And, and one of the next target might be, well, okay, he's been cleared out and there's clearly a different agenda and it's no longer the May regime because the May regime was the Sedwell government and he was still in post, so it was still the Sedwell government. Well, the Sedwell government has fallen and we've got a new government now. Uh, whose government is it? Uh, it's the uh, it's the Boris Cummings Gove government, I suspect. It's the government of occupation. We're going to have to have a more detailed uh, look at uh, this section because there's so much mm. actually happening today. But let's bring Boris on screen because pay attention to what this man's talking about. Uh, he's talking about renewing UK. The head uh, express heading here is Get Britain Building. Um, huge announcement in days to trans transform Tory Blue Wall. But look at the detail here. The feeling is that we're on a steady course in dealing with coronavirus and the time has come to start talking about the government's longer term ambitions. So while coronavirus was keeping everybody's heads down, they were working on their plans. Where are they going? Well, the Prime Minister wants us to get back to talking about the plan for levelling up and rebuilding the country. This is very dangerous language. This is about a complete change to the whole of UK society. And uh, this one here, a government uh, insider said the message will be build, build, build. Uh, we'll have a lot more to say about this next week. And I'm going to add to this that we've got the public locked up in uh, uh, locked up. They're buried in bubbles. They've been socially reframed. That's partly what the masks are about. And we've got them mesmerised at the moment because they're going to be let out. Many people getting very excited. But the 4th of July, they're going to be able to have a drink in a pub if they've booked and they don't stand up, I think. The public are now in la-la land. Meanwhile, the government of occupation, because that's what it is, uh, David, is coming up with their plans to change the whole of society. Now, if we're crowing about Sedwell going, I'm going to say I'm crowing a bit because I said that this man was immensely dangerous, Dominic Cummings. He's still in post. And uh, according to uh, this uh, article here, apologies, I think this is also, yes, it's the Express as well. Cummings is drawing up plans for a major overhaul of the civil service. He's convinced the coronavirus crisis has exposed widespread bureaucratic failings in Whitehall and is intent on stripping power from the cabinet office. A hard rain is going to fall. So something incredible, because I bring it back to you, David, we're talking about who's running government. We're talking about who's got control in the cabinet office. But Dominic Cummings is sitting on the sideline and casually saying, well, the company, the cabinet office is going to go. So who's running Britain and um, how is it they're able to man just magic up the transformation policy as they go? What's happening, do you think? Well, Cummings, right? Bless his little heart. Bureaucratic feelings in, in Whitehall. Oh, yes. Yes, that, that's true. 
that's absolutely spot on. Too much power in the cabinet office, true also. Needs a huge root and branch reform, true also, because these are the people who are selling out our country to Europe. Now, that's all very good and well, but like all of these things, it's when they get to the point of saying, and what we are going to do is that you have to, A, put your hand on your wallet, and B, be very careful as to what comes next. Now, we don't really know what comes next because it's all a little bit vague. Uh, I'd have to say um, the early in, um, suggestions by Boris that we're going to have a, quote, Rooseveltian moment um, don't, doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence because the American economy didn't recover until Roosevelt didn't recover. Um, he managed to um, create a recession within a depression. Uh, so I don't know if Rooseveltian economics is quite the solution. But of course, we're not quite talking about that because what we're talking about is a global um, uh, new deal. And uh, it's going to be done with uh, banking trickery that Roosevelt could not have even dreamed of. So we're in a slightly different world. What are the implications of that? Uh, but but not only not only is it uh, as you say, David, but but this recovery, of course, uh, whether Boris and Cummings head in this direction, certainly what's being expressed by the World Economic Forum and so on is that this recovery is going to be absolutely a green recovery. Right, I'll add the bits together for you. Okay, let me follow it through. Just want to label uh, Cummings here because basically, we can now see that the coronavirus. A real virus, and yes, people tragically died, but no question that this virus has been used for a political agenda. It's a political scam. And what are they doing? They're destabilizing the UK so they can rebuild from the ashes. Um, we've asked this question, if power is going to be stripped from the Cabinet Office, who's going to be running UK's government of occupation? That's the key question. But uh, what's the real plan? they're going to destroy UK institutions, history and culture. And I'm going to put my money on the table today. No question that this is what we're going to see happening. Everything flattened as they really get to work destroying the UK. And if we want to start to understand where it's going, policy exchange here, unleashing the power of the union, ideas for new leadership, uh, encourage people to look at this document. Here it is, modernising the United Kingdom. And just one um, paragraph that caught my eye. There's so much in this document. The UK government should establish a council of UK civic leaders chaired by the Prime Minister. This is the, this is the new constitution. This is the new uh, type of country that uh, we're having. Um, That's not a parliamentary democracy. No, this is something. And the cover is, of course, a network, all little networks joined together. This is immensely dangerous. Encourage people to read it. And why did I pick you up over the green agenda? Because if you look at the contents here, uh, ah, we've got how sorry. Go ahead. One yeah. Green Nation has just, just jumps out the page. Absolutely. Right <laughs> so we've got everything from unleashing the power of the union, power to the people. Well, it's not going to be power to the people. It's going to be stripped from the people. But there you are. You saw it very quickly. My one Green Nation supporting local businesses to support the Green Nation. And on it goes through everything. 
uh, but they're going to look after us. Um, we're going to be able to trade. There's going to be local labor markets. It's promising the world. And down the bottom there is the one greener nation reaching net zero, reconnecting nature. That'll be the rewilding of the countryside. This is all immensely dangerous and it covers every single facet of UK society. And I noticed this one here configuring central government to support policymakers in local areas. Well, that doesn't mean what it says. This is really bringing the centralised government control to every local area. So very, very dangerous what Boris Johnson is now unleashing. He's got the public disorientated, locked up, wearing their masks, happy they're going to be let, let out if they behave themselves and don't go to the beach. And what is coming in next, uh, transformation of UK. Mm. I'm going to end that s slot there. There's more to come, but I think we need to give it justice. So, David, I'm going to say to you, um, no question, we're going to see amazing things unleashed in UK. And um, it's vital that people now start to understand how dangerous this government of occupation is. We just jumped through to David's there. One, so. one, of, the, one of the things which uh, has been most noticeable about the COVID-19 crisis is that the, the, the agenda has been led by quote, the science, a phrase that people who know nothing about science use, uh, and the scientists have been put front and centre in front of the cameras, and their work, however flawed, Neil Ferguson, we're looking at you, however flawed it might have been, has been used to justify the political decisions. It's very clear that this um, the, the, the Cummings approach is built on, on science. It's built on this approach, and it's also clear that science, as a as a whole, is in crisis, and the crisis is one of uh, problems with basic definitions and basic honesty and truthfulness. And um, it's going to be used as a counterfeit currency to justify decisions, uh, just as our actual currency is going to be counterfeited and used to pay for those decisions. And that com that combination. Uh, is, is going to be very rough on um, quite a number of our people, I think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, okay, David, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but let's just uh, move through a couple of other items here. First of all, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, this is a little video I've, I picked off the internet, and I couldn't find who the preacher is. It's an American preacher, and it's a, it's a black congregation, black preacher, and he's talking about the deaths in the community, and uh, I thought he covered it extremely well. And then there's the problem of death. If we're going, if we're going to argue logically, the argument got to hold up on both sides. All the killing in our community ain't coming from white people. Come on, say amen if you can. We are killing one another. Our old people are scared to get out at night in their own community. They're not scared of white people. They're scared of young black boys on the street. Amen. 
No, oh, no, 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 no. All the killing that's going on ain't going on in River Oaks. It's going on in South Union, in Third War, on Cullen and Martin Luther King. Every street that's named after Martin Luther King across America is riddled with crime and death in the name of a man who stood for nonviolence. The church has got to accept some responsibility because we in here singing and shouting on Sunday morning. Let's get out here and go tell that young black boy and that young black girl, we're going to teach you how to love yourself more than somebody taught you how to hate yourself. Pull your pants up. Take your nasty pajamas off when you get up in the morning to go outside. Wish I had somebody to help me. Act like you got good sense. Talk like somebody's raising you. A whole lot of our problems are self-inflicted. And then, uh, David, that's uh, that's pretty brave. Well. And, and so true. And the, the reason I was I was so impressed with that, not only is it courageous and he's telling the truth, and, it, and it's a truth that it desperately needs to be heard, but it it, it applies um, all across the globe. How how many of our problems in, in, in the British problems are self-inflicted? Almost all of them. And if we had had that approach that he's advocating there to our young people, we wouldn't have had Pakistani rape gangs, grooming gangs, uh, abusing tens of thousands of, of, of girls across all of our cities. It would have been stopped because that, that spirit would have stopped it. And we have to be looking at ourselves and looking at our problems being self-inflicted. So I, I was very impressed with what I had to say, and um, it just shows you that more and more we're seeing that the, the best answer to the, the, the errors of BLM are coming from the black community, often in America. Now, the worst answers to BLM, the most craving and cringeworthy answers, uh, come, of course, from the BBC, and they've surpassed themselves over the weekend with this incredible headline. Uh, while Dane Fields found solace in the landscapes of the UK and beyond, many in the black, Asian and minority ethnic groups see the countryside as being a white environment. Hashtag countryfile. So even countryfile has gone woke. There is no part of the BBC that is not irretrievably woke, that is not peddling race hate and race division and um, race baiting at every turn and kneeling to anyone that will happen to come along if the colour chart suggests they should kneel. It's cringeworthy in the extreme and um, only there to divide our people and separate us and have us at one another's throats. And that's the BBC for you. Uh, it, did, it did spark another uh, avalanche of hashtag defund the BBC on Twitter, I was happy to see. And you want to see the answers to that tweet on Twitter. It would do your heart good. Okay. Okay. Well, look, we're totally out of time, David, but uh, let, I just want to end with, uh, with
with Neil Oliver, a, a fellow Scotsman uh, there, a writer, broadcaster, historian, has appeared on the BBC quite a lot, but nonetheless, uh, this is his quote. Yes, Neil Oliver often tells the truth, and the nationalists, the SNP, detest him for it. Uh, he said to young people, don't go to university, find an honest way of earning a living, read widely, collect books, and amen to that one too. Yeah, okay. And I'd, I'd just say with a smile on my face, in the chat, uh, in our chat box today, uh, there was the comment that the BBC website is trash, and that was pretty straightforward, and also I only use the BBC as a, a, a website for entertainment, and that was obviously said in a fairly derogatory sense. So I think people are now beginning to see through this massive BBC propaganda machine. We'll end there. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time. No, we won't. We'll be back at the proper time. We will be Wednesday. back at, at the proper time, one o'clock on Wednesday. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.